Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. <laughs> welcome to Judgment Day, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where three humans team up with the mission to travel back in time to the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s to destroy the worst of pop culture and bring the worthy remains back to the present. I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to teach a killer robot from the future how to speak current day lingo. <laughs> I'm Seth, the host most likely to need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle, and forget to say please. And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to make enough enemies that multiple cyborgs get sent back in time to ensure that he is never born. I'd be sad if you were never born. Well, this podcast would have an awful lot of blank space. <laughs> <laughs> that's one consequence. <laughs> oh, that's really the only one, right? That's, that'll be fine other than that. Today, we are headed back in time to 1984 and 1991 and also 1997 and 2029. <laughs> Get ready to have your mind blown both by a cyborg assassin and multiple time travel paradoxes as we take a look back at James Cameron's hit movies, The Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So I can't believe it, but it's taken us two years to finally revisit a time travel movie. <laughs> We should go back in time and insert one into the first season of our podcast. (laughs) Oh my god, and then just pretend like nothing changed. (laughs) The 80s and 90s are littered with time travel movies. Obviously, there's Back to the Future trilogy, but there's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, Time Bandits, Flight of the Navigator, Peggy Sue Got Married, 12 Monkeys, Groundhog Day, Time Cop. I mean, these are just the ones that like I scroll... Uh, scribbled on the t- off the top of my head. <laughs> There's probably more. <laughs> These are the ones you scrawled in your dream journal as your favorite movies of all time? Yes. Okay. I can okay. shout out a recent watch, Demolition Man. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, Demolition Man. A bonkers movie that we'll probably never cover, but deserves we some should. attention. Should. I keep forgetting that the Terminator movies are time travel movies because I'm just focused on the Terminator <laughs> aspect of it. And I was like, oh, yeah, he travels back in time. It's a major element of these movies. It's true. They really missed out on the alliteration of like the time traveling Terminator or something like that <laughs> to remind you in the title that he travels in time. The Travelator. One of the reasons we decided to do the Terminator movies on this episode is because we'll be having an interview with filmmaker Ben Foster, who just directed the film Time Trap, a sci-fi adventure that was inspired by 80s and 90s movies like Back to the Future, The Goonies, and the Terminator movies. But before we go to that interview, Chris, do we have any reviews this week? Kind of. (laughs) Kind of how? (laughs) We don't have a review per se. There are no stars attached to this. However... (laughs) Uh, we did get a listener email that we would like to address. Feedback on the podcast. corner. Someone knows our email address? Who's been giving that out? <laughs> the title of this email is about the Goosebumps episode. Oh. Is it R.L. Stein? It is not. <laughs> well, unless he is disguising himself as a younger Canadian female. Oh. It's always possible. The email reads, uh, Hello, everyone. I love the podcast, but the mocking of Canadians on the latest episode hurt me a little. It kind of came off as if Canadians are less educated than Americans, and that's why we speak differently. Do Americans really hear our accents as that strong? We say sorry differently, sure, but that isn't universal. Please don't take this as something negative. I genuinely love the podcast. Smiley face. The latest episode was just a little hard to listen to at one point. And yes, our actors are terrible, but we somehow produced Ryan Gosling, so we can't be irredeemable. And who wrote that? 
Someone who doesn't want to give their name. She didn't give her name. <laughs> well, I think we need to check the facts here. Has she left a review of this podcast? Is she even qualified to speak to us? Yes, Canadians can speak to us just like Americans can. <laughs> well, that much is clear. Okay. I respect the intentions of this letter. I respect, I greatly respect our delightful neighbor to the north. Um, I would much rather be there right now than anywhere in the oh, continental over 48. Oh, yeah. We want to be Canadian. Yeah, we don't want to be here. <laughs> so, welcome us with your free health care and, and your new weed. So if it, if it helps us get out of this situation, then we will say sorry. We will say sorry unreservedly. And we love Alanis. As if you're a big fan of the podcast, you knew that. Jim Carrey we love. James Cameron is Canadian. We're going to talk about him today. And we love Ryan Gosling as well. Like, absolutely. I think he's one of the finest actors alive. Yeah, we got we got no hate for Canadians. We're sorry no, we gave and, you that impression. And, and honestly, the most we intended to poke was very, very gently. Uh, <laughs> and we did not mean any insult or injury or harm upon our wonderful Canadian neighbors. So we are here with Ben Foster, the director of the new film Time Trap, or at least half of the director. (laughs) One of two directors. That's right. Mark Dennis couldn't be here, but he sends his best. Are you the top half of the director, or or is it like a left-right? We we wouldn't say top or bottom. (laughs) We would go go left and right. Good call. Um, Good, good. But yeah, no. No front or back. It depends on the day. Yeah, I'm the left, Mark's the left, I'm the right, Mark's the right. It's good. You get both perspectives in there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for hopping over here today. <laughs> Time Trap is a new sci-fi adventure film. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the plot of the film? Yeah, so Time Trap follows uh, a group of kids, and they go out into the Texas wilderness looking for their professor that's disappeared, and they kind of follow his trail down into a cave, and once they get inside, they start to realize that time inside of the cave passes differently than time on the outside of the cave. Like it's the sun rising and setting. Time is passing differently down here than it is on the surface. How long have we been down here for? I have a date We've been here weeks, maybe months already. We have to get out of here. So this is a new movie. <laughs> what's what's a new movie? Yeah. Typically, we talk about old movies here, and I know that you guys mentioned being inspired by films like Back to the Future and The Goonies and Terminator. And I think there's a lot of you know filmmakers working right now who are inspired by those things. But one thing that struck us about this film is that it's actually about time travel, and that's kind of what we do here: is we go back <laughs> to the 80s and 90s, like you know, every couple of weeks and really talk about what we were thinking back then, what we were watching and how that really shaped our personalities. We like to dig kind of as deep as we can into all those things. So I was wondering what it was about though that era that um, that you felt like you wanted to capture in, in your film. I feel like the, just the carefree nature of the adventure that they had in, in those films back then, like it wasn't always too dark. I mean, they'll get dark, like Terminator gets pretty scary, but 
it's always uh, it's always kind of ends up being a lesson of friendship and and something like that. And that's kind of what we wanted to do to do with this. And this is definitely a movie that I would have loved as a kid. Uh, just the exploration element of it and um, in the concept of of time travel and to do it in a way that doesn't have a DeLorean and you don't go backwards in time. It's more difficult to pick this thing apart as long as you can buy the fact that a cave is a sort of time capsule. Yeah, I, I feel like that spirit definitely comes through. Like, I was immediately reminded of the kind of movies that I would watch as a kid, too. Um, I thought you captured that spirit really well. Yeah, like, I felt like that adventurousness, like, came, like, sc- screaming through. And another thing about it that I kind of appreciated was that it didn't have, like, the treasure map. Like, there was not the specific, like, you have to do these exact eight steps to find to the... To unlock the thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would map out the entire course of the movie for you. Uh-huh. Um, and while I always liked that part of something like Goonies, I really liked that this felt kind of higher stakes because there was the chance that they would all get lost at almost every turn. Yeah. I wonder what it is about time travel and kids movies or like kid friendly movies. Is there something there with <laughs> with with kids needing to like go back in time and fix something? It always seems like it's a very family friendly sci fi um, uh, aspect of 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 film. Those kinds of films, you know. Is there anything there when you guys were developing this? Because you were you're not one of the writers, correct? Mark wrote the but film. Mark wrote um, it. But you know, we we did a lot of work on the script and stuff like that as we went he was always the guy that disappeared and had to go right in a room alone for mm-hmm. for weeks at a time but yeah no i think everybody experiences time and so i think it makes sense in a different way to everybody and, and time is different for all of us like the younger you are a year feels like a whole long time we were playing a film festival a year ago and i can't believe it because it feels like it was a month ago a year just gradually becomes a less significant piece of your existence on earth yeah now that i think about it that really is mirrored in your film with them realizing like you know as time goes on for them that time is going faster and faster and they're like where'd the time go like literally it's they're like panicking about it but i think we all do kind of experience that and i think that's one of the reasons why we do like looking back at you know early part of our childhood because it feels so long even though like comparatively it was actually less time than we've had as adults now but it felt so like long and so important yeah and even the making of this movie i mean we shot this thing four years ago oh wow and that's so a whole our, high school link that's what i was gonna say so these kids <laughs> the, the kids in the movie are going into high school when they start shooting this thing and they're coming out of high school by mm-hmm. the time it wow. comes out so it must be a weird uh thing for them because it's been this kind of present thing looming and me constantly calling their parents and being like, hey, I need a line of dialogue from uh, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Or I need to come, you know, do a pickup shot. Okay, we're going to pitch it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, we thought about that. Mark, that was Mark's thing, because I I did a lot of that stuff, and I would call Mark, and I'd put him on FaceTime or something like that, and I'd do a line or a scene with Max, because he was in Texas or traveling or doing, doing whatever. And we'd finish shooting and I'd be on the phone with Mark and he'd be like, we can't use any of that. He's got a mustache. Mm. <laughs> it's just not, it's not going to work. No, you just <laughs> so. do the thing they did for Superman. Uh, <laughs> that did not work for Superman. Yeah. With, what's his face? And they, they CGI'd out the mustache. Not even <laughs> the $50 million they spent on that works. Right. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to work for this. Pretty either. much anything that begins with like Superman did is going to be a cautionary tale at best. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this, this has been a huge part of their, of their time on Earth. 
So what's your relationship with Mark? Like, how long have you guys known each other? How did you end up starting to work together? So we both went to University of Texas, and we met during a class, and we were the last, like, the odd men out during a class assignment, and so we were kind of just forced to work together, and it turned out to be a perfect sort of partnership because he was always the guy that had a great script. I was the guy that had a camera, and I'd grown up in Austin shooting music videos for musicians and editing wedding videos and doing, like, I had the process down, but I never had you know, a fun story. And mm-hmm. so Mark brought that and then, you know, where I'm I'm weak, he's strong and where uh he's weak, I'm strong. Did I just say the same thing? <laughs> Did I just we make Mark it. weak twice? <laughs> we'll figure it out. She's she's strong strong twice, and, okay, he's, and he's just very weak. No, just what was the process like getting this on its feet and developing it and like finding investors? Or yeah. I mean, uh, we're all USC grads here, screenwriting and critical studies, but we've all tried at certain points to like, you know, have our stories be shot and we know how hard it is. Um, so congrats on even just getting it made. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, how was that whole process? Because four years is so long. Yeah, and you know, a lot of that comes from just going for it and, and doing it and kind of leaping without looking. We had another movie. We had a start date. We had raised some money. We had a casting director that was sending the script out to actors. And when you do that, you have to wait like a week for these guys to read it or they have a deadline. And they always wait until the last day. Nobody gets the script and then the same day they're like, yeah, I read it. I don't like it. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that's usually the answer. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, Mark's thinking was, what if we just went in the closet, came out, it was a week later, and we could just know whether or not Pierce Brosnan was going to say no, or if he was, or if Billy Bob Thornton was going to tell us to get lost. And I think he figured a cave was cooler than a closet. And, um, <laughs> and but more expensive. More, more, yeah, way more expensive. Fun story, Pierce Brosnan is still in that closet. <laughs> He's, he loves that closet. But yeah, no, that's how the idea kind of came about. And while we had that movie sort of slowly chuckling, along mark was mark sent me the first half of this script and i was like this is way cooler than the movie we were about to make (laughs) and so we kept that start date and we sent out a different script to different actors and you know within he sent me the script in may and we were shooting in august wow and that may not be the best way to do it because we ended up you know changing a lot of things and, and really finding out a lot about the world and the story while we were on set and while we were shooting and even while we were editing we had a chunk of shooting that we saved that we did a few months later in between finishing shooting the first you know three-week shoot in texas and the rest of it we learned a lot and we added things and we actually even came back a year later and added more stuff in the whole hopper storyline and all that and all that um oh, was that was put later. in after yeah oh wow yeah but it but it, and wow. it comes from from a series a time trap series idea that mark had and i was like what if we took something from episode two of the of the series and we just put it into this movie and it turned out to be a really cool a really cool thing i was thinking when i was watching it that its spirit feels like it translate really well to a mm-hmm. series yeah yeah no we've we talked to a tv studio about doing that it didn't happen but mark's got a really cool eight episode thing laid out for what this could be so i want to know if you like terminator one or two more <laughs> That is the most important. Two, two is more fun, I think. But one, one is where the concept comes from, and I, I mean that's where that's where all the paradoxes are too. Kind of, you know, that's it. They all end up right at the end when when they when they're together. Words of pure wisdom, <laughs> just. <laughs> Do they both like two better? <laughs> no, no. Two's more fun though. Two, you want your hero to be able to team up with the superhero. Like that's that's where things get crazy. Like you don't always want the bad guy to be the most strong thing. Like it's cool when you've got the robot on your side. I like two more. Yeah, two's two's probably two's more fun. That's for sure. <laughs>
you're not going to talk about the other Terminators. You're, you're only doing no. Terminator and Terminator what, what 2. What other Terminators? We terminated the other Terminators. <laughs> they were terminated? Just one and two, yeah. It's fun to see those characters brought back either way, but they're definitely nowhere near as good as the other ones. And Cameron's new one is just going to be called Terminator 3. Really? Wait, what? What? I hope I'm not spreading a total rumor. You should look this up But there already was a Terminator 3. It was literally called Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. And that's the best dick move by Cameron I've ever heard of, because that, he's just going to pretend oh like God. they didn't do it and do his Terminator 3 and Wait, say, fuck you. Wait, is he going to direct it? Yeah. It's almost as if he's going back in time and stopping those <laughs> movies from ever happening. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's what all those Avatar sequels are really, just like Terminator sequels in disguise. <laughs> One of them's like, another Titanic. Yeah. It's like a scratch-off movie ticket. <laughs> yeah, instead of Avatars, I just want more Terminator and uh, more True Lies. <laughs> and is Linda Hamilton in this one? Do you know? Yeah. Wow. Breaking news. <laughs> wow. Terminator Google 3. all of this before you put it on. <laughs> We're going to have to run this by our show's fact tracker yeah, who has been fired out. and rehired several times. Are, are you sure it's not Terminator to the third power? <laughs> Terminator cubed. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone would try to like out dick Ridley Scott, I think yeah. James Cameron would be the man. Yeah. Wow, we have twisted ourselves into a whole paradox thing. <laughs> That's right, we're time traveling. Our, our I don't whole, even know what we're talking about. We episode. all just stopped and started thinking of Ridley Scott and James Cameron's dicks, I think is what happened. <laughs> you guys, when are we? <laughs> so besides like Terminator and the Goonies, Back to the Future, are there any other things from the 80s and 90s that you feel like kind of inspired you particularly for this film? Especially things that are possibly kind of embarrassing because we talk about those things a lot on here in addition to like kind of the classics. I mean, it's got like a standby me thing maybe with, with the kind of group of kids sticking together and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. as a unit. Somebody asked this question once during an interview and Mark was like, DuckTales. <laughs> That's a fantastic answer. And I was like, after the thing, I was like, man, were you just like over those guys or what? What the fuck was that? And he was like, no, I'm serious. Like every episode of that thing is a great adventure. They do cool stuff and they're out in the jungle or, or whatever. And that's kind of the, the fun and carefree thing about about this movie at times. Sometimes you can it gets try and sell this to Disney as the live action DuckTales and see if they notice yeah. that it isn't. It's just Snapchat filter <laughs> duck faces on everybody and tries to them. Everybody else is doing it. <laughs> what about any like filmmaking tricks from like Zemeckis or Spielberg or Cameron? Was there anything that you yeah. got inspired by on that level? For sure. I mean, we realized that with, with our budget and post abilities, we could pull off most of the stuff that they could do in like the early 80s. So we did a lot of uh, compositing things. There's there's a lot of miniature work in the movie, actually, like towards the end when the ropes are all coming down and oh, yeah. flying through the cave. That's all miniature. And so some of our miniature stuff is is aluminum foil painted with Home Depot rock spray. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's so awesome. when, when you're looking up at the at the effect at the top of the at the top of the cave, that's all tin foil. Now that you know, you can tell. Wow. <laughs> you don't think <laughs> no, about it. No, but it looks so good. It totally plays. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you and Mark have any? Uh, big pop culture disagreements like you obviously have some shared inspirations um, but what about anything that you guys fight on <laughs> oh man i wish he, i wish he was here because he remembers fights better than i do um <laughs> he likes blink 182 a lot more than i do <laughs> i don't hate him it's about the time we walked away from him <laughs> <laughs> what are your opinions on who framed roger rabbit because that is one of my favorite movies of all time and chris hates it Chris hates it. So I'm glad that he has an unbiased thing to work from. <laughs> <laughs> now he has to choose a side. Clearing the slate here. Just you letting you know that hating off, it is I wrong. Can, I can do that. I can answer that one because I think it's okay. 
<laughs> so somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Wow. We, we, we have a lot of uh, disagreements. How about Dante's Peak? <laughs> I like Dante's Peak. Huh. Oh, my God. Oh, but yeah. That's, yeah. that's definitely a bad 90s movie, though, and I'll, uh, I'm, okay, I'm okay with that being the fact, and I'll still like it. She gets eaten by acid. Yeah, it's it's very daring. <laughs> Poor grandma. <laughs> Linda Hamilton's in that, right? She is indeed. Yeah, she, she is. is oh, yeah. Very what much else is she that. in besides those <laughs> the Terminator movies? She gave me half of her steak one time. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, went to a, I went to a film festival and she was playing her movie. Uh, I had a short film there and she was playing her movie and the actors in my short film were eating with her and I was sitting at the table and she was like, here, are you hungry? <laughs> you, we buried the lead of this interview with Linda <laughs> Hamilton giving you steak. <laughs> Where can people see your movie? On the 13th, it'll come out on iTunes and Amazon and Video On Demand and all the places that you can rent a movie with your clicker. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and I was curious about just one other thing, like, and it's very specific, but it comes up a lot in all of the episodes we do. When you watched those things that were formative for you, like The Goonies of It All, The Temple of Doom, all of that, did you watch that on VHS? Did you watch that on cable? Did you see those things in theaters? Like, what was the primary way that you took in movies like that? Most, I mean, it was mostly VHS as a kid, just like sitting on the floor playing with Legos or something and watching Indiana Jones or Jurassic Park or, or whatever it was. I know I saw Jurassic Park in theaters. I know I saw Least Last Crusade. I think if I was already a fan of a franchise, my parents would take me to go see it. But it was mostly VHS. And uh, and I remember going to Blockbuster because I didn't always own, own them. And I would go to Blockbuster and I would be like, all right, we're getting this again. Or we're getting Harry and the Hendersons for the like... 14th time. Yes, me and my sister rented Hell that yes. so many times. <laughs> yeah. I rented that movie many times. Why didn't you I, just buy it? Exactly. Well, I don't know. That's the thing, but but you, that's what you did. Like, yeah. You just go rent the same movie, and I guess my parents were like, okay. They were like $80 back then, a oh, lot of them. Oh, that's true. But they were like crazy. Still, like, VHS we probably were $80? Yeah. Really? When they first oh, came yeah. out, they were like super expensive, and then like they would be $80 for the first six months, and then they would, right. some of them would re- be reduced for like people to actually own but but this is why you would tape off of cable oh yeah so i did, I did do games. that i have some of those where like i'd be on it and it would cut to like you know some benadryl commercial yeah. and i'm like <laughs> get the first like three seconds of it mm-hmm. and i kill it did you actually see terminator 2 when it came out you know what i don't think i saw that in theaters i saw that at home i saw that at my at a, at a friend's house for the first time and it was awesome and then i saw first you know terminator terminator after that obviously I feel like most people around our age probably saw Terminator 2 before they ever like, Yeah, that back. seems to be a common or paradoxical. But yeah, but Terminator 2 stars a kid. It came out when roughly our age group was around that age. So we probably had more, like, we're like, oh, I want to watch it. Because you yeah. can relate to John Connor. Yeah. And it, and it checks that, like, the 80s, 90s sort of adventure box. Like you said, it's got a kid in it. It's got a high concept. Um, they're getting thrown into these, you know, this sci-fi situation. Like... That's everything that I liked as a kid watching movies, and that's what we put into this movie. There's a lot of trucks. And trucks. <laughs> true. We got a cool truck. We have two cool trucks. You do. You do. And a hippie van. And a hippie van. It's true. Yeah. A hippie, yeah. If you could go back in time and tell yourself who started this movie one thing, what would you tell them? I don't know, because I'm temp- I would be tempted to tell them to not shoot when we did and spend <laughs> another, whatever, three months on the script. But all of those horrible experiences that we had that let us down what felt like dead ends or what led us to here, and this all feels 
good to me right now. Yeah, your movie's so, done. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. movie's done. Not everybody gets to finish a movie, and not everybody gets to play it at the Chinese theater. I mean, that's awesome. That's amazing. Very great. And even fewer get to have it play uh, in in at least some theaters. So yeah, you know, we feel we feel good about where we're at. People just have to buy it. <laughs> so. <laughs> Awesome. We'll definitely check it out. Congrats. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank yeah, you so much for coming. Yeah, that was awesome. And for the record, he likes Terminator 2 more. <laughs> <laughs> he likes Dante's Peak too. I like Dante's Peak. <laughs> I'm a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. Be back. Let's talk about James Cameron a little bit. James Francis Cameron was born August 16th, 1954 in Ontario, Canada. He moved to California when he was 17. So they were sending their best. They did. <laughs> they did. <laughs> and studied physics and English at Fullerton College before he dropped out. He had an interest in special effects and film technology when he was young, and when he saw Star Wars, he decided he wanted to make films himself. He worked as a miniature model maker at Roger Corman Studios. That's the horror director. Yeah, B movies, lots of like cheap. Yeah, like the first cheap effects. Uh, the first Little Shop of Horrors was. Roger and that's Corman. really interesting because a whole lot of filmmakers and also people is uh, kind of surprising as Jack Nicholson first got their start working for Roger Corman and working in a lot of roles on his movies. That's right. He was the dentist in the Little Shop of Horrors movie. Oh, wow. He worked as an art director and special effects designer and director on John Carpenter's Escape from New York. He was hired as the special effects director for Piranha 2, The Spawning. And when the original director left the project, he was promoted to director. He was soon fired (laughs) for failing to get a close-up of one of the actors. What? But he still gets credit for that movie. Yes, he does. Although he does not claim credit for no. that movie. <laughs> no. Yeah, I wonder if they changed the credit after, I don't know, that I when Terminator came out. But. It's still the same, but he considers the Terminator his first movie. Yeah, I mean. Uh, it's a pretty good change. Yeah. yeah. So while working on the Piranha movie in Rome, he got food poisoning. While recovering, he had a nightmare about an invincible robot hitman sent from the future to kill him. This nightmare inspired him to write Terminator. So James Cameron is one of the most successful directors of all time, probably along with Scorsese and Spielberg, one of the directors that people actually know his name, but he's only directed eight movies. And one of them was Piranha 2, so it shouldn't count. (laughs) But that is incredible, incredible to me that besides Piranha, he's directed seven movies, just seven movies. And how many of those movies have been the most expensive movie ever made when they were made? Because... Almost all of them. (laughs) Yes, almost all of them. Um, Box office-wise, his last movie, Avatar, is the worldwide box office champ with $2.7 billion grossed. Coming in second is Cameron's Titanic with $2.1 billion grossed worldwide. Uh, It's just insane. He just just keeps uh, beating himself. (laughs) (laughs) Literally and figuratively, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane to me how much he dominates the scoreboard, but I also wonder... If that would if that would still hold if you weren't spending that much on making those movies? Well, apparently it's a very good investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's paying off. Yeah. Well, I think it has paid off because 
I mean, Titanic was like a famously troubled production and very expensive, but it worked. Avatar, even longer, but it worked. But like now, it's been almost 10 years since the last Avatar and he's still making his next movie. So at some point, I wonder if the amount spent on these movies is going to just kind of collapse. But I guess people question him every time. And at the end of it, he's like, haha, I have so much money. <laughs> it, so. No, like it really is. It really is still kind of astounding to me. Like even just putting aside how crazy it is to me for one movie to make 2.7 billion fucking dollars. And a bad movie at that, sorry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. And I totally agree with that. But the fact that he has never once done the Icarus maneuver and flown too close to the sun is just really surprising. That's a track record of several decades now. It's also surprising that he hasn't made an Icarus movie. (laughs) That seems like a real James Cameron joint. (laughs) And actually, like, filming too close to the sun. Oh, yeah, he would go way too close to the sun. And actually implanting wings of Like, we're actually going to the sun for this movie. (laughs) Don't you say I can't do it because I can. No one gets reimbursed for mileage. So let's talk about The Terminator, and that's the actual title. A lot of people forget the the. The Terminator, and I'm I'm gonna... (laughs) I'm going to go crazy. The last time we talked about this movie, I kept going crazy calling it The Terminator Terminator, so... Keep the the in Terminator. The Terminator, I think, is the preferred title. (laughs) The Terminator is directed by James Cameron, written by James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd. It was released October 26th, 1984. The budget was $6.4 million. The box office was $78.3 million. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, that is a lot of money, especially for the time. Yeah. Um, It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you know what his name is? It's not Terminator. (laughs) Or what what is his actual, like, title? T-800? Yeah, you got it. Okay. I was yeah. just testing you. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> wow. I, didn't, I didn't know that. I thought maybe he also had a name. <laughs> Clarence. <laughs> Joe Terminator. <laughs> I'm sorry. His friends call him Joseph. Tominator. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bean plays Kyle Reese, the soldier that comes back from the future. And Linda Hamilton plays Sarah Connor. Yeah, she does. So before Terminator... Schwarzenegger had already starred in a bunch of movies, including Hercules in New York, Conan the Barbarian, and the documentary Pumping Iron. By Terminator 2, he was one of the biggest movie stars on the planet, starring in both comedies and action movies, and he got married to a Kennedy. So these movies were very good for him. Indeed. (laughs) He also owned his own planet in the form of Planet Hollywood. (laughs) With other movie stars of his caliber. In the same constellation. Yes. Um... (laughs) Terminator was James Cameron's second movie after Piranha, and it was his breakout movie. It's the only movie of his to receive 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which was kind of surprising. (laughs) He sold the script for Terminator for $1 to producer Gail Ann Hurd of Pacific Western Productions on the condition that he be allowed to direct. Hurd and Cameron were later married from 1985 to 1989. Was that one of the conditions as well? (laughs) I'm not sure. I didn't read the contract. (laughs) Which is interesting because then he later married Linda Hamilton, who he obviously met on this movie. Mm -hmm. So shenanigans. I don't know. Yeah. Familiarity breeds love and then contempt. So when was he married to Catherine Bigelow? After Linda Hamilton? No, I think it was before. No, 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 no. He's been married like five times. Yeah. That imploded. (laughs) Yeah, that ended really poorly. Actually, if you Google worst divorces ever, (laughs) (laughs) I think I think there's literally like Mm. a... 
Whatever BuzzFeed listicle lists that, it's going to be number two or number one. <laughs> oh, this is why I was confused. He's actually married to Susie Amos, who is in Titanic. She played the granddaughter oh, of Rose. Oh, that's right. They kind of look alike. Yeah. So I had seen that and remember that he was married to like an actress from one of his movies and then like mistakenly. But Linda Hamilton was the one before her. So he's actually stayed with her for a good 18 years. Right. So Susie's the one after yeah. uh, Sharon, Gail, Catherine... <laughs> Linda. <laughs> true love there. Yeah. True love. Five times charm. True love, true lies. Cameron first contacted Schwarzenegger to play the role of Reese, not the Terminator, who Cameron initially envisioned as being a type to blend into the crowd. So that changed significantly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? That inconspicuous Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Everyday Arnold. What? What? <laughs> is your average Joe Terminator. <laughs> I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger often gets cast as like everyman, and it's very odd because he is the opposite of that. I just watched Total Recall again, and I'm just like, just this, any dude could have been this, and yet it's like the most jacked human being. <laughs> well, true lies, too. I mean, he's supposed to, it's supposed true to be like a surprise especially. that he's a spy. It's like, he is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course he's a spy, like not a, a car salesman yeah. or whatever he's supposed to be. And like Jingle All the Way, he's just like someone's dad. Right, it's like, yeah. I don't think that was written for Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no. But his stardom is astounding to me, actually. So the plot to The Terminator, a cyborg assassin is sent back in time from 2029 to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, a woman who will one day birth a son who grows up to become the savior for the human resistance against machines in a post-apocalyptic future. Helping her as a soldier from the future is sent back to protect Connor. What is your experience with this movie? Did you guys see this when you were younger? So I know that I saw both Terminator 1 and 2 when I was a kid. These were both movies that my cousin absolutely adored, like along with all the other Schwarzeneggers, like Predator and all that stuff, kind of the Stallone action movies as well. I believe I saw Terminator 2 before I saw Terminator, before I saw The Terminator. Um, Correct. <laughs> and these were also movies that my dad loved too, and that would be on HBO all the time. So I, I feel like I saw them both like with my cousin on like movie nights and also just like flipping through the channels on HBO. I feel like I always liked Terminator 2 a lot more than 1. Like many other 80s and 90s properties, I knew this franchise primarily by the catchphrases, I'll be back and hasta la vista, baby. Those were very much a part of... <laughs> so the way you said it was like... <laughs> what do you want me to say? It like... Hasta la vista, baby? Like Arnold? Hasta la vista, baby? <laughs> <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back, baby. Bye. <laughs> Well, I hadn't seen the movies, so I didn't know how to say it. <laughs> so The Terminator, I was one when that came out, so I obviously did not see that uh, in theaters. <laughs> I remember when Terminator 2 came out, but it was way before I was watching real action or sci-fi movies. The Batman movies at that point were probably the most adult movies I had ever seen. So I remember it being kind of like the coolest thing in the world that year, which was 1991. There were lots of boys my age that were really into it. It had toys, like a lot of other strange things that we think probably shouldn't have had toys for kids back then. <laughs> <laughs> but it was rated R. So for me, it was like strictly forbidden. Like there was no question that I was even going to ask anyone if I could see this movie. Like it just was not in my radar. And I think I had this impression of rated R movies that like they were so adult that like I couldn't even handle it. Like my brain would explode if I watched them or something because 
I just assumed that anything that was that restricted had like buckets of blood and like intestines everywhere. Like that's kind of how I had assumed like Jurassic Park would be when I couldn't see that. And that was PG-13. But like rated R, I was just like, oh my God, like I don't think I'm ready for that. Like I didn't even want to see this movie because I just assumed that whatever I would see in it would be just like inexplicably violent. And the movie's not really, I mean, this movie could probably be PG-13 today or at least very close to it. But I just had assumed that it would be much worse. So I remember being over at a friend's house shortly after this came out. It was probably on HBO or on video. His dad was watching it. And the kid was like, oh yeah, I saw this. I love this movie. And I I just saw like seconds of the movie. And I know it was the, I think it was probably the opening scene because it was the with cyborgs like shooting each other and I was just like oh my god there's a rated R movie playing like in Mm -hmm. front of me like what am I gonna see and I didn't see anything but I felt like kind of lucky that I had escaped like being (laughs) scarred for life by some crazy image and didn't really understand that there's not that much of a difference between this kind of a rated R movie and a PG-13 movie like really the difference is probably like saying fuck a few times that's really interesting because I know I don't know exactly when I first saw any of the Terminators but I know that it was one of the first rated R movies I ever saw and like you Chris I don't know what age that like ended but there was a point in my in my youthest of youth where I thought like oh they must have had a very good reason to not allow people my age to see this. There has to be something so just horrific about it. And it was very distancing between me and, like, a lot of the other boys in my class, like, who had seen it and were just like, yeah, that was cool. And I was like they're so grown up and I felt like such a child in comparison. I did later end up seeing these movies because I became a fan of James Cameron, Aliens and Titanic and True Lies, like pretty much all of his movies I was a fan of. So I think I had only seen the first movie once before this podcast and I owned the second one on DVD because it was a special edition and I bought shiny things. If I remember correctly, I think Terminator 2 was like one of the first really big DVD releases that like everyone I knew who were the first people to get DVD players, they were like, oh, I got Terminator 2. Yeah, the edition I have is covered in metal and... Mm -hmm. I have it in my head, I can picture (laughs) it. And it it still has a ridiculous number of features. Like, even from anything I've seen, I was looking at it this time and I was like, I can't watch all this. It's like 60 (laughs) hours or something of Futures. I don't know how they fit it on one disc. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's insane. (laughs) They sent future disc technology back (laughs) to us. (laughs) I never watched these movies growing up at all. And I I have no memory of when I saw T2 for the first time. But I own it. So I must have seen it at some point and Mm -hmm. decided I liked it enough Mm -hmm. to own it. Or you just like the shiny cover. Or, again, someone sent it back to you from the future as (laughs) a warning. (laughs) But I remember uh, the first time I saw The Terminator, I've mentioned this before when we did Titanic, and I'll probably mention it in every podcast episode where we do a James Cameron movie. A few years ago, I did a sketch show called King of the World, a James Cameron sketchtacular. (laughs) So every sketch was a different James Cameron movie. So, of course... Um, I wrote it with a friend and I was in charge of the Terminator sketches. So I had, I was like, okay, I guess I got to watch the first Terminator. (laughs) Um, And I actually was really surprised about how amateurish it was. I don't know if that's the right word. Like low budget, maybe like really, really low budget compared to T2. Um, It was just very shocking because T2 is like the most like high budget look glossy looking action movie. Um, so I remember being caught off guard about that. So that was about like eight years ago. 
something yeah, like I that? Yeah, I think the Terminator cost about as much as one hat in Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, those that, I mean, I really wish I could remember when I first saw T2, but I own it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think what's funny is that all of us own that movie. I don't know if that's saying something for later about what we think about these movies, but none of us own Terminator, and we all we all own Terminator 2. <laughs> Was there a Piranha 2 sketch in that show? <laughs> we mentioned it at some point. Okay. Yeah, but we didn't we didn't have time for a Piranha, wow. a Piranha 2 sketch. But Missed we did opportunities, it. just saying. I mean, I'm sure that's right for parody. Because we had a guy actually playing James Cameron, so he mentioned. I have just a couple of facts that I wanted to also throw in uh, from my research, which is that one, the movie was sold during a pitch where... James Cameron had the actor Lance Henriksen, who is in a lot of James Cameron's other movies, uh, rip the door down to the production office that they were in and come in in, like, Terminator gear, like a ripped shirt, leather, I assume, and, like, scared the shit out of everyone. (laughs) I could not love this fact more. This is the definition of a fun fact, Chris. Never bring facts to this podcast that are less fun than this. I just love the idea because Lance Henriksen is like, I'm sure he's not a very small person, but he is not a gigantic megalo monster of a man like like Arnold Schwarzenegger is. The thing that I'm focused on is that this was basically his first movie, so it wasn't like he was James Cameron, you know? (laughs) That too! (laughs) And he, he like, burst down their door. Oh, but he was James Cameron in his own mind. (laughs) Right, right. I think that's the abiding lesson, is that James Cameron was always James Cameron. (laughs) I think he's always thinking, like, what should I break? (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just his go-to. Like, I can't sell this movie without... Showing that I can break things. No one has seen me break things in a movie before. <laughs> I will use... break this office. Give me the money. Can I build a new machine to break things? <laughs> I think that my second fact is also fun, which is that the studio wanted O.J. Simpson to play the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Kyle Reese. That's right, yeah. Uh, I didn't know about the O.J. fact, though. Yeah, well. <laughs> wow. It's almost as if someone went into the future (laughs) and saw something that he did and then went back and was like, you know, uh, James Cameron did not like that idea and actually didn't like the idea of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie either until they met and bonded over the Terminator character. And that's when he decided that uh, Arnold was the one. Can I just say in this scenario where somebody comes back from the future to warn them not to cast OJ, they're not going to go back into the future, back in time to stop the murders from happening. <laughs> right. Again, we are going back in time to give DVDs to Becky <laughs> to stop the OJ murders at most. We're not even trying to kill Hitler or, like, kill baby Hitler. No, we're not. Nothing. They, this person Nothing. has wrong priorities. They're not going back in time to help uh, his victims live. They're going back in time nope. to tell James Cameron, don't cast him. Hey, I'm not saying anyone here has the best priorities. I'm just <laughs> stating... The facts. Oh, my God. Uh, The other potential casting was Sting as the Michael Bean character, Kyle Reese. So we could have had the O.J. Simpson and Sting version of this movie, which I'm not going to lie. I want to go back in time and just, like, make that happen. Oh, my God. So we don't have that version. We have the Schwarzenegger version. That's the version I saw. What are you guys talking about? Oh, that was, like, the super director's cut? That's on the DVD, yeah. What did you guys think of watching The Terminator now? Like I mentioned earlier, I really always preferred Terminator 2 uh, to Terminator 1 growing up. I think 
Becky, like you, I was kind of thrown off by not the sense of amateurishness, but by the clear low budget nature of that whole production on every level. Amateur is the wrong word, but yeah, low budget. To me, it feels a lot more handmade. It Mm -hmm. feels like the kind of thing that was like one person's real passion project that they got other, you know, they got Mm -hmm. really good craftsmen and stuff to like help make it. But it seems so out of character for James Cameron. (laughs) Well, but it just seems so much smaller scale than any of the other James Cameron movies I've seen since and had seen before this at the time. But rewatching it now, I absolutely loved this movie. It so clearly and quickly established Linda Hamilton's Sarah Connor character in this version of Sarah Connor. Um, And I definitely still think I saw Terminator 2 first, so I experienced, like, super impossibly strong badass Sarah Connor first. So even rewatching it this time, I was kind of initially not thrown off, but just very surprised because Linda Hamilton's voice is pitched a lot higher. She was obviously much younger when that movie was made, but I felt like she inhabited that character so well and it reminded me so much especially in the first act of watching Halloween and seeing Laurie Strode and getting to learn who Laurie Strode is so efficiently and effectively in the first act of Halloween, I felt like you really got to understand so well who Sarah Connor was, what she actually wanted, um, and also got and I got pulled so immediately into the kind of grand chase sequence that is this whole movie. Um, and and yeah, I was just really impressed on all levels how it holds up, even though it clearly looks like and is totally an 80s movie. It feels like a pretty timeless like science fiction story. Yeah, I actually had the impression going into these movies that I liked the first Terminator more because I had seen it once and respected it as a story. I didn't remember it much as a production. I remembered certain scenes that were very effective, especially like the police station scene that I found really striking. And yet I had seen the second one like several times and had a pretty good frame of reference for what that was. So it was interesting going back into the first one. And I had not noticed the first time I watched this movie kind of how 80s it was, how much like a first film it feels in certain ways, how comparatively low budget it feels to the rest of James Cameron's work and it's interesting to look at it as I think you can really see him stretching in this and and being the James Cameron that we know and and pushing technology as far as it would go which at this point wasn't quite far enough to pull off the effects I think there are some effects in this movie that just don't quite work and feel a little bit cheesy now which I would say is not really true of most of his other movies. Like, most of his other movies, the effects are still pretty good. But that he had a starting point, like everyone else, that this was him kind of testing his limits, and you can kind of see him hitting those limits in this movie because he didn't have, you know, the clout that he had after this movie. But I still, I was also, like, really impressed with this as a story. I think this is a really fantastic story, and... Yeah, it's structured so perfectly, I think. Yeah, and I think that there There's a bit of, like, amateurish acting in the movie. I think that pretty much on every level, there's a little bit of forgiveness you have to give it for feeling a little bit cheesy or artificial in places. I think its reach is a little bit more than its grasp. But I still really respect this movie as, especially, like, a first movie and 
for this to be so visionary as a very distinct outlook. And I think it was very influential. I mean, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. But yeah, for this to be essentially his first movie is still very, very impressive. I'll be honest, these are the first movies I'm watching as a mom living with a newborn, so everything I'm watching, I'm pausing every few minutes, um, or trying to console a crying baby, um, so I am really j- trying to focus <laughs> on these movies. Um, I felt I felt a little bored with this one. What? I don't know. I, I thought it was okay. I don't oh. think I'd watch it again after this podcast. I don't think I'd watch it again. Wow. I, we need to pause this podcast so I can cry. <laughs> I, I agree and with I like, both what you're saying. Like you said, like it's visionary, especially for a first time director. And some of it has to be forgiven for feeling dated and stuff. I totally get that. But as just a person watching a movie and trying to focus with like a crying baby, like that didn't really do the job. And I'll talk about T2 later. Um, But like, I'm just, I really, I mean, some things are great. Like I thought the casting of Schwarzenegger and actually his performance um, obviously was iconic from the moment he, you know, appears on screen. Um, And there is a lot to like about it feeling like kind of like a backyard home homegrown indie movie um but just as something that holds up it just feels like a relic i don't know oh becky see i okay <laughs> with with full appreciation of your recent mamatude <laughs> and your kid's great your kid's great everyone out there should know my opinion <laughs> we will not try and go back in time and stop you from having your baby <laughs> no 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 <laughs> I don't think that you can actually fully appreciate this movie if you're starting and stopping it. And actually, that's interesting because I think previous times watching it, I ha- it has been more of like a start and stop, like as I'm doing laundry or something kind of rewatch movie. But to me, and again, I mean, I, I'm sure part of it is just because I also rewatched Halloween so recently in preparation for our podcast episode. But like Halloween, I felt like so much of the effectiveness of this movie and so much of its, for me, very successful tension comes from the relentlessness of the Terminator and the relentlessness of Sarah Connor having to escape. Um, And I don't feel like that would have impacted me nearly as much if I had started and stopped it while I was watching it. Um, and and again, I, I've had uh, arguments with a lot of my film buff friends about like whether Terminator 1 or 2 are better movies. Um, and Chris, I, I, I love... I love how you put it. That's exactly what I would say is that like James Cameron's reach exceeds his grasp here. Um, But to me, it doesn't fail on any of those merits. I I do agree that like having the T-800 robot be kind of this animatronic thing um, definitely looks dated now. Um, and, and especially like the kind of prosthetic uh, skin that's put yeah. over the animatronic robot. Yeah. But also <laughs> in those scenes like where it's injured, like that kind of herky jerky animatronic motion to me really fits um, the 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 damaged cyborg creature. Um, and also though, like even even if I weren't really able to let that kind of datedness slide, and even if that had knocked me out of it. Just the kind of storytelling choices 
um, that James Cameron makes just from the very beginning, I feel like, pull you so much into specifically into Sarah Connor's perspective and POV as she's encountering this situation and trying to run and trying to run and having no idea whether to trust Kyle Reese, having no idea of anyone to trust. Um, I just felt really pulled me in so quickly. Like, and, and again, like reminding me kind of of Laurie Strode, like Sarah Connor knows so quickly that she's being pursued by these strangers. Um, and she is the only person who sees it and the only person who truly recognizes the danger, even though she knows and we know she doesn't have any context whatsoever for what the danger actually is or what it represents. I guess one of my bigger problems with this movie is I feel like the character and the actor that plays Reese is kind of a dead weight. That character could be more interesting. And he's a big part of this movie. And it's anytime he's on screen, I'm just like, I don't care. And I don't know if it's the character so much or just the actor. Would you prefer Sting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like... I just feel like somebody could have played him more interesting or they could have added a little bit more to him. And and I think that Linda Hamilton is great and her character is awesome, but just something about him and he's on screen so much. And I think maybe compared to the second where there's lots of great characters, I feel like this one, he's one of the three main characters and he does nothing for me. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I think that, in general, casting is not one of James Cameron's best attributes. That's that's Um. very diplomatically and beautifully put. (laughs) And he uses a lot of the same actors frequently, and I I don't think that they always fit the roles that he casts them in. A little bit of Bill Paxton sometimes. I don't think (gasps) Bill Paxton... Not in this movie, though, right? (gasps) He's got tire marks on his face. Mm, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I love me some Bill Paxton, but I don't necessarily think... I'm never that, like, tran- transfixed by him. Like, I'm always kind of like, that's Bill Paxton doing a Bill paxton thing. Wow. I'll forgive you someday. Michael Bean is another, because he's in other ones of his movies. You know, we talked about Titanic and how Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't really yeah. fit that role, even though he yeah. he made it very iconic. Um, what else is Michael Bean in? He's in The Abyss. Oh, I've seen that, like, oh. once. Oh, I don't remember him in that and movie And he's in at Aliens, all. right? Is he? Yeah. Who's he in Aliens? He's the Kyle Reese guy. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I will totally agree with both of you. Um, I do think at least his, Michael Bean's performance in this movie, not really recognizing him from other roles, I think his performance is very flat. Um, I think the writing of his character is very flat. Um, I thought it was interesting at first early on when they play with the kind of early dynamic between Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor where you don't quite know how dangerous this guy is and you and Sarah Connor really doesn't know if this guy is about to kill her or not um but again I I felt like it rushed into kind of forcing that love arc and forcing that chemistry between them too quickly to be really organic or believable. Yeah, they do a real Romeo and Juliet, like, we just met and we are Mm -hmm. madly in love and, like, we'll die for each other. Yeah. I can picture why he was madly in love with her, maybe not the other way around. I mean, yeah, if someone just shows up and is like, I'm from the future and I'm gonna save you, (laughs) I might be like, I'm gonna have to think about this. (laughs) John Connor gave me a picture of you once. I didn't know why at the time. It's very old. Torn. Faded. You were young like you are now. 
He seemed just a little sad. I used to always wonder what you were thinking at that moment. I memorized every line, every curve. I came across time for you, Sarah. I love you. I always have. Yeah, and I feel like eventually, once she does actually come around to believing that he's there to rescue her, I went with it. But still, it was like he's the least interesting part of a movie that still has a lot of really interesting elements that that still very much work to me. Learning that Arnold Schwarzenegger was originally considered for that role makes me think about that character because in dialogue he's very i would say kind of like butch and masculine and like he he tells her like do exactly as i say at one point and Mm. it's very not me too friendly but uh (laughs) i don't know it's the 80s but that's the way that he comes off and he's very you know controlling of her and he comes from a really rough future where you can imagine that someone would be scarred and and very tough and terminator-esque i guess a little bit brutal like yeah yeah. brutal and and very literally dehumanized to a large extent and that's not what they cast they cast kind of a more softer gentler kind of guy very well put absolutely and and then you know becky was saying earlier that the terminator was originally meant to be more of an everyman kind of character which i think is what we get a little bit more in the sequel but in this case i think that yeah maybe that sort of original intention would have i don't know made that character a little stronger if he was that kind of like tough guy kind of rambo-y whatever it would be interesting um and i do like schwarzenegger as the terminator but i think it is interesting to see this big bulky guy uh trying to protect a woman from somebody who's like inconspicuous and maybe somebody that looks more like michael bean uh, because it kind of, there's a juxtaposition there of like, wow, this guy must be really dangerous because he doesn't look dangerous at all. And people are so like scared of him. And I'm also kind of curious, like thinking about it in retrospect and especially after having rewatched it just now, like, and learning Chris about that kind of like switcheroo that they pulled with the casting. That seems like a decision to me that would be made to make uh, Kyle Reese more appealing as a romantic interest. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because in this movie, like Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator will walk into somewhere like the police station, and I'm like, that guy looks like he's up to no good. Like, he does not, <laughs> like, they, everyone kind of acts like he's just, like, a dude, but I'm like, uh, he is obviously about to kill everybody yeah. in this place. Like, that is for sure. Uh, so... I mean, it works because it made a really iconic character, and he's very, very menacing as this character, and yet for what the script asks of that character, it's a weird paradox because we know that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator and that that's perfect casting in the way of, like, no one else we can imagine could have played that role. And yet, like, really rethinking is, like, was he right for the role? Like, obviously he was in a in a certain way, but... Um, there are certain parts of the script where it's like, that doesn't really quite work, and yet we just accept it because... Yeah, I wish they could have just rewritten uh, Reese's part. Because I like Schwarzenegger, but then I think he needed to be rewritten a little bit or recast into just somebody more interesting than a kind of a flat kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just another small thing I, I enjoyed about this. Um, I always really love stories where the lead characters have to evade like all sides of the quote-unquote law. 
you know, where it's like they can't actually find safety or refuge, like with the police. And they like in this one, they get in a huge shootout and chase with police. Um, and also, of course, like the the person who is the real bad guy is always trying to come and kill you. Um, it's a small thing, but it's just, again, like in a kind of action thriller sci-fi movie like this, most often we would be taught to like respect at least some kind of leadership or authority of some kind somewhere. Uh, and there really isn't that here. And I kind of appreciate that because it really does give us a sense of how isolated these people are. Both of these movies have a very interesting relationship with the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll talk about how that plays out in Terminator 2 when we talk about that movie. In this movie, the police are good, but very inefficient at protecting her. And completely weak in every way. <laughs> Yeah, there's one scene where one of the detectives, like, shows Sarah Connor a bulletproof vest. And I was like, oh, how smart. Like, he's going to give her this vest to wear. And he was like, no, this is probably what the guy was wearing. And then, like, sets it aside. I'm like, come on, this woman is, like, being hunted, obviously, by this crazy guy. And they do nothing to protect her. You know, it really is up to Kyle Reese to protect her because nothing that anyone in the modern day is going to do is going to save her. And the other great moment in this related to the police is that scene in the police station where Sarah Connor has been arrested after this big old uh, car crash after trying to evade the police. And the Terminator walks through the front door of the police station, takes one look at the walls and structure of the place, and then drives his car straight through not only the door, but also through the entire barrier into where the police are working to kind of go after Sarah Connor. And that was the setup for the original version of the I'll Be Back line. I had Mm -hmm. totally forgotten in the many years it had been since I'd seen that movie, like, where that line originally comes from, because it and other catchphrases are done as callbacks in Terminator 2. And I just really thought the the setup of it was so clever, and there I really did appreciate kind of the moments of levity in this. Oh, I liked his line, fuck you, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Which doesn't sound like a clever line, but is (laughs) in the context of this movie. It is, and, and also to agree with what, Chris, you were saying earlier, I do think it is visionary because like the use of the POV from the Terminator's perspective as he's like weighing options of what human interactions to pick and choose, I thought was so interesting. And I don't remember seeing that in in, in any movies that came before this. I'm sure there were plenty of like cyborg type characters and androids and robots and even killer robots, but none where you actually saw it like consciously deciding things. Oh, that was like the Terminator vision, right? Yeah. Like that was just a really great conceit that uh, Cameron invented of like seeing it through the Terminator's point of view. And that's been parodied like a thousand times. Oh, absolutely. Well, and like similar things are done in like Predator where they have like the kind of heat vision of the Predator's point of view. But it was just really interesting, especially in the context of like this fake robot that's designed to act and seem human, like to watch it go through the deliberation of that. And then I also love how they use it when like the Terminator is injured and like has to run off and hide away and like repair itself. Um, again, it's like, despite these parts of it that are obviously dated, I still felt like that especially really played well. Yeah, those visions through the Terminator's eyes happen so quickly that it's hard to really read the information. And yet I feel like they're 
probably a lot of jokes in there, actually. <laughs> uh, probably. Like, it's the Terminator's interpretation of humanity, which is pretty cyborg-like. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that police scene the best out of anything from this movie because I think it feels so transgressive, especially for the time. Now, many of us have come to question the police a bit more than we probably used to. But in the 80s, I feel like the police was such an institution and so looked at as kind of a... I don't know if I want to say moral beacon, because I think there's always been... Uh, <laughs> shades of gray there, but that it was such a... They're heroes. A, yeah, they're <laughs> heroes, and they're they're strong, and for someone to go into a police station and, like, l- blow everyone away, I mean, it's kind of unthinkable, I think, like, and it, it just feels like, wow, this guy really is that menacing and can really, without blinking an eye, because he's not even human, but can really take out, like, everything that we can throw at him, like, effortlessly. Yeah, and I mean, having said all that, I can never forgive the Terminator for killing Lance Henriksen. <laughs> I think the music is really iconic. Oh, definitely. I really like it. I don't know who did the score. Brad Fidel and... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> and the uh, iconic like theme from like the opening titles. Oh, do you mean... Dum, 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 dum. I do. That is literally him beating on like a frying pan or something. <laughs> really? Which is what it sounds like, but more musical. Do do do. Yeah, that's got that hero theme after it. Yeah, it's that really is great. not a frying pan. Like, oh yeah, and it's and it's it is so iconic in the sense that like even just hearing that one measure of that one musical phrase, you like instantly get mm-hmm. it in your head. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that is actual notes. Like, how would you play that? It's like a drum. It's yeah, it's yeah, the it's same note. But you can transcribe drums as notes. Um, like right. They have, like, drum scores. But I'm just uh, saying it's unusual for a film score to not even have notes. Oh, precisely. Like a, I think an that's, iconic score. Y- yeah, no, it's so unique in the sense yeah. that there is no melody, there is it's no rhythm, harmony, there is rhythm. no, like, real yeah. theme to it. It's just percussive. It's really interesting. So let's get into the time travel element of this movie. I feel like I haven't seen all of the Terminators in the franchise, so I don't know how much this tracks through all of them. But like, so basically, (laughs) Linda Hamilton sleeps with Kyle Reese. She gets pregnant, names him John Connor. John Connor grows up to be the leader of the resistance who sends Kyle Reese back to protect his mom from the Terminator. And that's how he meets. So basically what they're saying is everything is already set in stone. Like time is cyclical and you can't change the past. I believe the word you're searching for is... (laughs) (laughs) But is that what this movie's trying to say? Because at some point, and I forget if it's this movie or the second one, but they say, like, the future can be changed. But I'm like, but can it? Because then you wouldn't be born. Boom. (laughs) I think this is kind of an open question, especially rewatching it this time. It seemed clear to me that the timeline where Kyle Reese, knowing John Connor in the future, comes back in time, I believe that that timeline is changed by the fact that now that Kyle Reese has come back in time, Sarah Connor sleeps with him and that's where John Connor comes from. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know that the, the ter- I don't know that the first movie, The Terminator, says explicitly that in every timeline, Kyle Reese is the father of John Connor. I think it does. Does it? I think well, it's pretty clear. They have that, he has a picture of Linda Hamilton that John gave her that John gave Kyle Reese in the future. 
And that picture is taken at the end of Terminator. And so all of that track, like he would have had to have been the father because he has this photo. My head's exploding. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think movies like, isn't it like 12 Monkeys? Like some movies Uh are, some movies have this, you know, um, that's their timeline is that everything is already set in stone. I think even Bill and Ted is like this. Like everything is as as it will be. Butterfly effect thing is that like if you change one minor thing, like it sends ripples throughout the future like you can't really change anything and so for something like this i think it is impossible to understand and i think that these movies really own that and just say like yeah this this isn't something that you can possibly comprehend like it's beyond the character's grasp how if john connor had never been born there would be no resistance and he wouldn't have been able to send kyle reese back and yet kyle reese is the father so he had to have been there it kind of gets at this like magical almost like religious sort of (laughs) feeling where it's just like like, this is both impossible and what happened. And also, I think that's a really important insight, especially because there's also seemingly a bit of a spiritual notion in this almost that, like, that we are these kind of immutable souls and that no matter what the circumstances of particular timelines or if there is a universe with many timelines, that we'll still ultimately be the same souls, even if in different bodies, and we'll still have the same, like, ultimate universal mission, even if we end up being born at a totally different time. I wonder if this kind of uncertainty and kind of cosmic question mark aspect was an element of most time travel movies of this time. Well, kind of going along with that is it struck me watching it this time, like how biblical this movie is with oh, absolutely. a mother, you know, carrying a child who's destined to change the world whose initials are JC, mm-hmm. uh, made by a man whose initials are JC. <laughs> I don't like that. Well, you don't have to like it, but it's true. You don't have to like Jesus for him to be your Lord and Savior, Becky. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I I don't think that that could possibly be, like, a total accident. No, No. I don't think it is No, it's not. (laughs) So, I think it works in that way, and that it's a very bleak future, and it's a very different take on this biblical story than the actual Bible, and yet kind of carries the same weight and is similarly unknowable. Kind of, we can't really answer exactly how this works, except to say, like, it's fate. It's some kind of divine whatever. That There's no sensible explanation for it. I would love to briefly touch on another aspect of the tri- time travel experience that I find joyful. Uh <laughs> Everyone always ends up naked once they're done with their time travel journeys, <laughs> and that tickles me. This reminded me of Die Hard 2, in that their 80s had a lot of <laughs> naked introductions <laughs> of villains. <laughs> Much like our show does. Of male nudity. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's Indeed. true. Lots yeah. of booties. Lots of yeah, nice Arnold, glutes. Arnold can get it, man. Oh, he can totally get Arnold it. Arnold can yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah he, he was actually, iron. We should talk a little bit more about Arnold in this movie. <laughs> um, can we talk about how his first jacket in this movie is so dumb? <laughs> His what? His jacket? His jacket is so dumb. It's like the most 80s, like, it's got fringe on it. Like, it's, it's so punky, terrible. It's a punky kind of, it's like, he still, yeah, still it's having terrible. the punk, right? Oh, it's terrible. He looks pretty good in this movie. I mean, it's interesting seeing a young Arnold Schwarzenegger, because I think, I think of him more as, like, 90s Arnold. And yeah, yes. this was very... Kind of Hollywood Arnold. <laughs> yeah, this is much more beefy, like, I don't know how old he was, what, 30-ish? I don't know. Uh, anyway, like... And I think his performance is actually quite great. Like, he's very, very menacing. Uh, He's very not expressive, which I think 
I don't know. Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of became a bit of a cliche of himself, even I think by the sec- the time of the second Terminator. And yet it's interesting to see him here when he really is, I think, acting and creating a character and not playing off of a persona that he's already built. Exactly. And I also think, uh, especially in this performance, that expressionlessness is menacing in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, going along with that is this movie is actually quite a bit a horror movie. Absolutely. James Cameron is associated with action movies and sci-fi, not horror movies. And yet it struck me how much of this movie is just a horror movie. The setup of a woman seeing that people with her name are being killed. Like that's quite disturbing. And the Terminator character feels like such a horror movie presence that that very like expressionless, like unkillable presence. I mean, I I don't think that the second movie at all feels like a horror movie really, but this one just the look of it, the feel of it, maybe even the low budgetness of it feels very much like a horror movie. And the setup is too. It's like a very like kind of final girl. I just I had that in my notes that she felt like a final girl. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially the last scene felt like a horror movie with it was it's just the skeleton of the Terminator. And the arm is like crawling toward her. Mm-hmm. That whole thing. And the whole like low budgety. I think he must have gotten some sort of like horror vibe working on Piranha 2 and Roger Corman and the, movies. Yeah, the Corman stuff. That that yeah. definitely like bled into this first movie. Yeah, and I almost like wished that I could see more James Cameron horror because Me I think too. he does a really great job of blending those horror elements with sort of what he also does, which is these very kind of grand scale stories and lots of backstory and lots of high concept ideas. But I liked how grounded that was in this sort of genre that we don't see him work in. And he's not a filmmaker that we associate with sort of the low key things that we normally get from horror movies, which is usually like small set pieces and small things happening not giant planes and and all this and maybe you'll get lucky and the sequel to avatar will be a horror movie (laughs) i think it might be but maybe not in the way that you're suggesting a low (laughs) mid-budget horror movie yeah 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 he's gonna go real small for this next one (laughs) you know james cameron 300 million dollars developing it and then he spends one million dollars on the actual movie He's like, you know what, guys? I feel like I've spent enough here. I feel like I've spent enough. I want to see him, now that we're talking about it, I want to see him do like a bottle episode kind of movie where it's all in (laughs) one room. I want to see this directing without things exploding or drowning. Would it be a giant space room with (laughs) lots of planes and and monsters? I don't know. And also it all takes place inside a literal giant bottle. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I also wanted to call out the end of this movie just because I feel like it really leads really well into the second movie with the Sarah Connor character has been kind of a meek-ish waitress character. And by the end, you really see that she has transformed and become this sort of roguish wanderer, like kind of a Ripley-esque kind of character before James Cameron had actually directed Aliens. But I really was struck by the end of this as feeling very portentous and very doom-laden. Should I tell you about your father? Boy, that's a tough one. Will it affect your decision to send him here, knowing that he is your father? If you don't send Kyle, you can never be. God, a person could go crazy thinking about this. I suppose I will tell you. I owe him that. Let's move on to Terminator 2, Judgment Day, directed by James Cameron, Jimmy Cams. J. Cam. 
<laughs> Written by James Cameron and William Wisher. It was released July 1st, 1991. The budget was $102 million. It came out eight years later with $100 million more added to its budget than the original movie. That doesn't really happen that often. Only when James Cameron does things. <laughs> right. Uh, the box office was $523.7 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing movie of 1991. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Robert Patrick as the T-1000, and Edward Furlong as John Connor. It won Academy Awards for Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Makeup. I'd say those are all warranted. Absolutely. Yeah. This movie marks the first use of natural human motion for a computer-generated character and the first partially computer-generated main character as the T-1000. The plot of T2. It's roughly 10 years since the events of the first movie. Sarah Connor is in a psychiatric hospital. Her son, John Connor, is in foster care. A new, more advanced model of Terminator called the T-1000 is sent back in time to kill John Connor. A less advanced Terminator, the same type hunting Connor in the first movie, is sent back in time to protect him instead of kill him. So it's basically like if an iPhone X was sent back in time (laughs) with an iPhone 8, like what would happen? I don't know which one is more recent. (laughs) (laughs) X sounds cooler, obviously. It's the most recent. Actually, I think they came out at the same time. But one is more advanced. This analogy did not work out. (laughs) It worked fine. But what if you just threw off the course of history and, like, there were no phones at all anymore? Like, you don't know the butterfly effect of this, Chris. True. Let's go back in time and have me not say that. (laughs) What did you guys think of watching uh, T2? I was more familiar with this movie going in just because I'd seen it more. I like it. It's not my J-Cam jam, I would say. <laughs> like, I would go to most of his other movies before I would really go to this one, even though I think this is maybe arguably kind of the most James Cameron of James Cameron movies in a way. And I think many people would probably call it their favorite of his. I think it's good. I just think it's much more about the action and it has like great effects for the time, especially. It's a lot of fun to watch, but there's not a lot of there there, I feel like. And the story is good, but really like considering how kind of compact and yet fascinating the first film story is i feel like this one kind of is just like and this i don't think it adds a lot of like mythology or too much to chew on it's just kind of like a fun ride it's a fun ride um i'm just sitting here like nodding until my head's gonna roll off because i could not agree more with like everything you just said it was very surprising to me because this has long been one of my favorite action movies and one of my favorite like sci-fi franchises overall and i was so interested to re-watch terminator 2 especially this time around i don't know what was different about how i approached watching it but coming away with it and especially watching it like right after ter- the first terminator film in the fullness of history i think i prefer terminator 1 to this movie i think it's a better story that is more effectively structured and told. Rewatching this movie this time, I focused a lot more on the kind of story structure of it and especially like what it did with Sarah Connor as a character. And Chris, exactly like you were just saying, I felt like it kind of didn't have too much to do with Sarah Connor. Like, and she is this super badass. She is this uh, highly trained and skilled warrior. And I mean, there's a lot of tension in those scenes where she's kind of in the asylum or in that like jail cell, basically kind of 
walled off from the world, walled off from her son, the only thing in in existence that she gives a single shit about, and literally the thing that she's obviously now shaped her whole life since that first movie preparing for, and like, you know, but it doesn't really have anything to say about her as a person, like separate from her like mission to protect John Connor. And similarly, like, Yes, the T-800 who comes back and is now the good guy um, learns some great human catchphrases. And it's intimated that he kind of can understand uh, human emotion a little bit more by the end of the movie because of his relationship that he develops with John Connor. But again, I, I don't feel like that's there's all that much there there either. And I also don't really feel like there's much to John Connor's character other than kind of like a James Cameron approximation of Bart Simpson. <laughs> um, and and I appreciate that. Like, don't get me wrong. And of course, especially at the time, because I remember seeing like Eddie Furlong in Nintendo Power Magazine, like in advertisements for Terminator 2 and then like Terminator 2, the Nintendo games. I remember when this movie was coming out and didn't see it. I wouldn't have seen it in the theaters, obviously, but I didn't see it for a while. But like, I was really excited for this and I've loved it for a long time, but kind of rewatching it at this point in my life and especially like rewatching it with the first one, I would agree, Chris, that I don't think this is as strong a movie as I used to think it was. I'm not usually the odd man out, but I love this movie. <laughs> I love this movie. I prefer this one way over the first one. And I think I don't like the first one so much because if I want the Terminator, I'm going to watch T2. <laughs> like that's if I'm in the mood for one of these movies, it's going to be T2. Did you stop and start this one the same way that you did the first one? I did because I have a baby and this is my life now. <laughs> but I always was excited to get back to this one. Okay. And in fact, I would like be like, oh, I want to see that. I missed this good part and I'm going to rewind it to make sure I But I you already kind of had much more of a frame of reference for this I movie. did, yeah. But I still wanted to rewatch. I know this one way more than the first one and I wanted to rewatch scenes because they're just so much more fun. This movie's more so much more fun than the first movie immediately. And totally it's different. It's not like a horror movie at all. No. And there's like a hundred million more dollars on screen and it shows in every single moment. <laughs> this is a lot more like aliens to alien yeah, for than sure. I previously recognized. For oh, sure. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And they're both Cameron sequels. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I appreciate that this is the sequel and I, I think it's one of the best sequels ever made because it takes everything from the first movie and subverts it. Sarah Connor is this kind of like weaker ingenue character in the first one when we see her again, she is this complete badass, but you don't get the full effect of that and unless you've seen the first one. The the fact that the the plot twist in general that um and I believe it was a plot twist. I don't think it was in the trailers that the Terminator is the good guy in this one. Oh really? Um I'm yeah, not maybe not. Oh, I'm pretty sure that I'm, was in the trailers. I'm not hundred percent sure, but let's just say that you never saw a trailer and you're going in fresh, like it's a huge reveal that Schwarzenegger in this one is is a protector, not trying to kill her. So the whole subversion with that. And I love those kind of inversions of, of characters and of power dynamics and relationship roles. And like, and Linda Hamilton is such a badass. And this, this performance, like everything about it is so well-crafted and so perfect. And it does look so fucking spectacular. Like it looks and plays so well. Don't get me wrong. Like I still enjoy 
enjoy the hell out of the ride of it. But I think Chris had the right idea. It's like, it's such a roller coaster ride style of movie. What this reminded me of the most rewatching it is Mad Max Fury Road, because this is a movie that is like entirely structured around chase sequences. Yeah, Mad Max Fury Road is the best of the Mad Maxes. <laughs> so. Well, and I totally agree with that. And But I think also that Mad Max does a lot more with all of its plot and story structure and chase elements to reveal character and to have characters like reveal themselves through those insane Looney Tunes action sequences. These action sequences are thrilling as hell, again, and, and amazingly orchestrated. I love the 18-wheeler truck chase sequence in this movie, like in the LA River, like all of that. I still love watching this movie. And I would also agree with you, Becky, that it is one of the best sequels ever, but I don't think it's quite as strong as I used to think it was. See, I, I totally get like character work from like John Connor and I love that I do like that it it focuses more on him than Sarah and his relationship with the Terminator and the fact that he doesn't have a father figure that he feels like an outcast keep it under 65 we don't want to be pulled over affirmative no 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 you gotta listen to the way people talk you don't say affirmative or some shit like that you say no problemo and if someone comes up to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, or later, dickwad. And if someone gets upset, you say, chill out. Or you could do combinations. Chill out, dickwad. That's great. See, you're getting it. No problemo. He talks about like kids being cruel or something that kids were like making fun of him at school and that he like now it's it's kind of like wish fulfillment of being like I have this indestructible monster on my side so the bullies better watch out like I can do anything now and it's it's this like having this imaginary friend that is there to defend you I just I got a lot this time out of John Connor's character as a 12 year old 13 year old kid not as like the next leader of you know the resistance. And I appreciated John Connor on that level, definitely, especially when I was younger, because I did get bullied a lot and, like, didn't really have a protector or a defender or someone who would step in on my behalf. Um, so, like, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like I think he's a completely, like, dispensable character. I just think that, again, like Kyle Reese's character in the first movie, there there were some beats of writing and character development that that could have made it a lot deeper. I think James Cameron is always really, really, really great with story and not always so great with the execution of the story. So I think that that's placed there in the story, but I don't think that we see enough of actual like John Connor struggling and needing that father figure. It's kind of just there in the broadest beats. It reminds me a lot actually of like the Jack Dawson character in Titanic who, where we're supposed to think that this guy has like seen it all and is kind of rough and tumble, but we don't actually see that this character has seen that. So we don't necessarily believe it. And I kind of felt that way with John Connor too, is that like, I would have liked to see him struggle a lot more and actually like, maybe this is a different movie, but like what happens if the Terminator comes to school with him? Like, you know, like those kinds of beats of... I, it's all played pretty broadly and, and it's so focused on the action. The Mad Max comparison is really interesting because I'm not a huge fan of Mad Max Fury Road and it's because I need a little bit more than like 
cool trucks in a movie to really grab onto. And I felt that 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 movie was something that just was like really weak on story as well. And here it's like, I really do love that first truck sequence in the, in the LA river. It's awesome. It, It looks great. It's so well executed, but by the end of this movie, they're doing another truck chase. And I'm kind of like, I already did this like, Two hours ago. Like, this is a long movie. What what about the the scene in the hospital? I love that scene, too. And I think that this movie is very, very strong for that first hour or maybe hour and a half. Yes, absolutely. And then it... I feel like it really goes astray with just sort of like wrote by the numbers action sequences. I think it sets up a lot of really interesting character things. I love Sarah Connor in The Asylum. I love John Connor when he first sees the Terminator and realizes like that Mm -hmm. his mom's crazy ass stories are actually true. That's the one scene that I feel like does feel like a horror movie again is when he sees first the Terminator coming at him and then the T-1000 coming at him and then that scene is kind of mimicked in the hospital again when Sarah Connor first mm-hmm. sees the Terminator right. and that's, a, that's right. an awesome moment that's great. and I love yeah. the callback where he says come with me if you want to live which it was weird because I always knew that as a Schwarzenegger line and then when I saw the Terminator, Kyle Reese says it. And I was like, oh, it's a callback. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I'd for- entirely forgotten where I'll be back actually started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yet I kind of feel like that hospital scene is sort of the pinnacle of the movie. And then the rest of it becomes just a lot more basic and it just kind of runs out of things to say for the most part there's a little bit of interest with john connor and the terminator and the father figure and i don't know what version you guys watch i've been watching the special edition which has all the extra yeah i watched that one okay that's the only version i know so that's kind of the one i refer to as like the real movie even though it's not the theatrical cut (laughs) so what what additional is in there in that version. There's more stuff between John Connor and the Terminator. There's some, like, comedy bits that aren't really in the... They weren't in the original? No. I like all some of those where, where the Terminator's smiling. Yeah. The scene where she's about to smash his um, brain, chip. I guess. The, the chip that, what? like, gives him his personality. That was not in the theatrical wow. cut. Wow. Oh, really? Um, there's some... The dream sequence with Kyle Reese is not in the theatrical. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. So I did watch the special edition because I... I feel like that has become, like, the actual the edition. kind of... Even yeah. though it wasn't Wasn't... One. Didn't we have a problem with the aliens... Yeah, like the for the original. This is a James Cameron thing. Yeah, it really. Where no, the director's it cut is. is better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like Ridley Scott, like he's not the only director to do a bajillion different versions. Yeah. So you never know exactly which one is the official one. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like if we had watched the theatrical cut, at least Seth and I would have felt even more this way because it sounds like a lot of the character stuff is what was cut out. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I just kind of feel like there's a couple of good moments with John Connor. I like the moment, I think is was cut out of the movie, but in the special edition where he tells his mom, like, you can't, like, smash the chip. He asserts his, like, sort of leadership. And it's the moment when she realizes, like, if he's this great leader, like, she has to let him become that and she can't tell him what to do anymore. Yeah, I just kind of feel like... Sarah becomes a bit one note after that. There isn't a whole lot of interest. Like, I feel like this story has so much potential with what she thinks of him and this guy that basically tried to kill her, you know, years ago and killed the man that she loves. And now she has to, you know, trust him to protect her. I just feel like there's a lot more there that just doesn't get explored. 
Also, I think, especially rewatching it this time around, and of course, like in the fullness of having seen several of the sequels, this was the proof that the Terminator franchise is a thing that can never really end definitively. No, no. And that the best that any <laughs> of will. the movie can do, uh, any of the movies can do, is like set up the next one. I feel like that in and of itself kind of imposes some limits on the amount of drama that it's able to wring out of it and the amount of depth that it can subject its characters to. You know, if it can never really, you know, kill off Sarah Connor definitively or kill off John Connor definitively and like create some like schism in the space-time continuum, I feel like there's a lot that it can't do just by virtue of the fact that it's like such a franchise now. Yeah, I... I mean, the first movie makes complete sense when you're watching it because a Terminator was sent back to kill this woman who will have the son. Like, that makes sense. Right. And then in the second one, it's like, and they also went back to kill the boy just in case that didn't work out. And you're like, okay. But, like, it starts opening up these questions of, like, why not try again and again and again and all these other times. You know, it's like, it seems like eventually (laughs) it would work. (laughs) Right. This should be a story of the value of persistence. (laughs) I want to talk about the T-1000 Robert Patrick. I really love this character. I think it's really interesting that it's a cop that he's he 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 shows up naked and the first person he sees and kills is a cop and takes his uniform and in 1991 cops were not totally seen as you know the the most respectful um authority figures but it was still subverting like people in this world you know trust cops and they can like get access to things and it was just really smart to make this character wearing a policeman's uniform and I, I just love the effects. Not every single effect totally holds up, but it's still impressive. They're pretty good. Yeah. You know, I think they're still pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And not just the effect, but I just love the way that they get creative with how they mess up his body, especially at the end when I think he's being shot at and like, but he had just like gotten all fucked up. <laughs> with the liquid nitrogen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, oh yeah, because he was like frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a cool effect. Also a great yeah. effect. Great yes. effect. Absolutely. Um, and so he's kind of like glitching. Mm-hmm. And they like shoot and he's like split down the middle. And so many of these are practical effects that are only on screen for about a few seconds or a split second. But you could tell that, wow, that must have taken hours and hours and hours of like makeup effects or prop effects to, to make those um, effects of how his body is all like warped and it's a, it's really amazing still. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like James Cameron is undeniably a visionary. And you Stan know? Winston, who actually yeah. did the effects yes. for both the first Terminator and this movie, like, yeah. and won the Oscar for this movie. Very well deserved. I think those hold up almost perfectly. They have a certain look that's a little bit like DVD-ROM-ish. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, like, they... They don't really try and do more than they can do in this movie, which I think helps a lot. Like, definitely, even just the liquid metal thing, I think is is a th- like because that is a lot easier to animate than like trying to get a texture perfect skin with all yeah. the pores and hairs and. It's like the they created the character based on the kind of technology that they could create at the time, whereas the first one they they reached beyond mm-hmm. um, what was possible at the time. So that's why these effects still look so good still. And just like just the movie around them, like even if it looks a little dated, like there's a sequence, not with the T-1000, but Sarah's dream where she looks at a playground. And even though like it's obvious it's like a mannequin that's being melting and burned like by this 
apocalyptic fire. But just the tone of that sequence is just, just the direction and tone and atmosphere is so good that oh, yeah. I don't mind the the obvious mannequin. Actually, that was really Linda Hamilton. Or was it? This, this was their divorce. <laughs> yeah, she hasn't She hasn't been in too much after that. That's the reason. That actually was one of the most compelling sequences for me, especially when I like first saw it as a kid. You know, you would like hear the term like atomic bomb and think of it in that kind of cartoonish Looney Tunes kind of way, mm-hmm. like an acme bomb. But like that sequence in particular, like imagining what a nuclear explosion and being caught in the wave of one would look and visually feel like mm-hmm. um was st- is still really chilling i think it's, re- it's still really effective yeah i did really enjoy the apocalyptic tone of this movie and the way especially through sarah connor's character that you feel like basically a nuclear holocaust is inevitable which in a way felt true at the time i think and in the 90s like it was just sort of this like looming forgive the pun but cloud hanging over everyone's head like that like we knew that this was possible and at least to me as a child i just kind of always felt like this was such a huge threat and that like eventually something like this would happen and it's sort of been diminished now by other kinds of threats and and other kinds of terrorism uh Uh, (laughs) let's move along Uh, (laughs) yeah it it depends on when this episode releases really (laughs) yeah but i appreciated in this movie that sort of darkness which is rare i think for a blockbuster of this kind and was one of the things i admired the most about this movie and i think the first movie feels very dark and horrific in a way, but doesn't feel super apocalyptic. And then this one really carries that out through the character of Sarah, which I guess maybe is why I was hoping for a little bit more from her, like as the movie goes on, which I I feel like her character just kind of falls off a little bit. This movie is just so much fun. Like it's fun (laughs) right from the get go when he goes into the biker bar and he confronts all the bikers and they put a cigarette out on him and he doesn't (laughs) flinch and like bad to the bone plays. Like I love it. I laughed so hard when Bad to the Bone started, because, like, literally just before the opening guitar riff started to myself, I was like, oh, if they played Bad to the Bone right now, that would be so fun. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, but... No, I still... But again, it, like, that does make the character of the Terminator silly. I don't feel like you go that part of the movie really expecting that the Terminator is going to be the same Terminator that he was before. He's not threatening anymore. He's kind of a pop culture joke at this point, already in the beginning of this movie, and I feel like he's already, like, on a like the movie star instead of a character that you really... But he probably didn't want... I bet it was deliberate because maybe he didn't want him to be as scary because we're supposed to like him. Yeah, it just makes this movie feel so much safer and get, like, the apocalyptic stuff feels kind of edgy, like, to show, like, children being burned in a playground. That's edgier than we would normally get in a movie like this, but... That kind of softening of him also, I think, undercuts a lot of that and just kind of makes it feel, I don't know, I felt like too safe during this movie. I didn't really feel like there was that much at stake. You kind of know that John and Sarah are going to get away, especially John, because obviously that the future depends on it. So there is a lot at stake. There's a whole nuclear war about to happen, and yet it feels kind of inevitable. And it doesn't really feel like much in this movie changes anything. I want to give a shout out to a Cameron regular, Jeanette Goldstein. 
Yes. Jeanette, come Go- through. Jeanette Goldstein. Best guess. Camille- I'm raising the roof. Chameleon <laughs> Jeanette Goldstein is the uh, plays John Connor's foster mom in this movie. <gasps> she's also Vasquez in Aliens, and she's also, uh, like, one of the immigrants in Titanic. Like the Irish. land of Tiernanog. That's all I remember. <laughs> oh, my God. She's the land of Tiernanog? Yes, yeah, she is. She's Tiernanog Vasquez Janine. <laughs> That's her Maybe name. not in that. I'll never get over that that is the same woman as Vasquez. That's, it's insane. That's a true chameleon. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have some trivia about Jeanette Goldstein. <laughs> She has since uh, started a retail store called Jeanette Bras, a lingerie store for large busted women with the slogan, the alphabet starts at D. (laughs) She has three locations in Los Angeles. And if I had bigger boobs, I would totally go get a bra from her. (laughs) Oh, my God. Shout outs to Jeanette. Go get some Jeanette Bras. Oh, my God. Go get your bras. I'm going to go get one. (laughs) Why the fuck not? You're going to talk to Vasquez. Yeah, field trip. I want Vasquez fitting me for a bra. That is what I want. I just, I had to share that. That was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like these days I am an A cup, maybe B minus cup at best, (laughs) but I'm going to stop in at Jeanette's. I am. I'm a K cup. (laughs) You laughed harder at that than you should have. Nope. Nope. I laughed exactly the right amount. I would also like to shout out another performer in this, the salute your shorts kid. Who's. Oh, the (gasps) mullet guy. Yeah. It's true. Uh, his mullet is amazing. Yeah. His mullet is the most 90s thing in this movie because this movie is actually pretty timeless, I felt like. Maybe Edward Furlong's hair a little bit is a little No, 90-ish. his hair definitely. That was like, was it, was it a butt cut? Was that no, technically it, a butt cut? No, but it had cut? like like long bangs. Yeah, the bangs. It the wasn't bang. as bad as the mullet. Haircut right now. What are you guys yeah. talking about? It wasn't as bad as the mullet, but like <laughs> this movie is pretty timeless. Like I don't it doesn't it doesn't really feel like it was made in the nineties to me at least. I like, feel like that's partly a reflection of the budget, maybe. I feel like if it were a lower budget movie, you'd be like, Oh, this is so nineties. Well, but So that's <laughs> James Cameron actually made it this year and then went back in time and released it in nineteen ninety one. But like it's obviously an eighties movie, just looking at it, but like I feel like even what they're wearing in, in Terminator Two, just something about it just seems really timeless. Because he's wearing a cop uniform. Terminator is wearing a biker uniform that's just black. Like, Sarah Connor is just wearing, like, a tank top and pants. Like, nothing about it screams the time period, which I think is really great. I'll agree with that. I mean, I always have a hard time remembering what year this was released because it doesn't feel as early as it really was. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I don't think it's aged as much as the Terminator has. Fun fact... One of the original ideas for the casting of the T-1000, played by Robert Patrick, was Billy Idol. I thought you were going to say O.J. Simpson again. (laughs) I was thinking Sting, (laughs) honestly. I think O.J. Simpson was busy preparing some bad things. (laughs) That would have been interesting, but Robert Patrick is really great in this movie, I think. I think Robert Patrick was fantastic in this movie. And I really do like the way that this continues... I don't know if it was conscious necessarily to like continue the weird police vibe that was in the first movie, but to make the character a cop is very, again, kind of transgressive, I feel like, and, and feel makes it feel very uncomfortable that this character that you think is going to come rescue you is actually a murderer and is maybe something that we could read into a little bit in modern days. No, I don't think it has any relevance at all in our modern times constantly every day on the news. John, honey, it's late. Please don't make me worry. Can we be there? Honey, are you okay? I'm right here. I'm fine. Are you 
you sure? Are you sure you're all right? What's the dog's name? Max. Hey, Janelle. What's wrong with Wolfie? I can hear him barking. Is he okay? Wolfie's fine, honey. Wolfie's just fine. What are you? Your foster parents are dead. Well, I like that he took what he was originally intending for the first one and put it in the second one as a subversion of what happened in the first one. I really like these movies together because they play off each other. I just prefer watching T2 way more because I just have way more fun with it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Seth and I were slightly harsh on this movie, I think, but only out of love because it's still a really fun movie to watch. And there's... There's a lot of really great moments, a lot of iconic moments. I really love just Sarah Connor, the badass, because she was, along with James Cameron's Ripley, like one of the early like badass women in movies at a time when you really very rarely saw that done well. And neither of them are sexual in any way. And like a lot of other like tough girls are also like kind of sexualized, but they are really just serious like heroes. So I love that. I think this movie and the first Terminator were so influential just in how complicated their backstory is. Because before the first Terminator, I can't think of a movie that had nearly as much of a complicated story as that. Like, the whole time travel thing, like, mind-blowing how this could even be. Like, I feel like movies were so much more straightforward, and now maybe they're influential in a bad way, and that movies now kind of feel too complicated and have too much of that kind of backstory element. But I think there's a lot of ways in which you can see Terminator 2 as the birth of movies now. Absolutely. I think it can't be understated the extent to which like Terminator 2 set the bar as far as action thriller and especially kind of sci-fi action thriller filmmaking. It is such a thrill ride and so much fun to watch. But in summation, I would say if you haven't seen either of these movies and if you have seen neither of these movies, watch both of them. I really do think they make like a very good kind of one-two punch. Because again, I, I do, Becky, like love the inversion, especially of Sarah Connor into just really one of the all-time badass action icons. I like that that's defined in a large sense around her like maternal role as the defender of the savior of humanity. Like that has such great mythical power and even where I see kind of weaknesses or ways that the storytelling in the second one could have been more complex, I do really still think that they hold up as kind of a great like sci-fi movie and a great sci-fi sequel so there are five terminator movies in total (laughs) nope two (laughs) yeah unfortunately you guys they kept going after this this uh, yeah uh the first two were followed by terminator 3 rise of the machines in 2003 terminator salvation in 2009 and terminator genesis in 2015 there's also the tv show terminator the sarah connor chronicles which is hard to say there's also a sixth terminator movie due sometime next year I remember seeing Terminator 3 in movie theaters at the time because it's like, ooh, there's a girl Terminator this time. And I've never seen anything else. And I don't remember anything about Terminator 3. And I'm assuming it was probably bad. (laughs) I liked it at the time. I think it is fine. Like, it's not as good as the first two. But I also think it's probably a lot better than the next two. (laughs) 
Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I remembered enjoying a lot of it. And then something happens at the end that I remember just infuriated me to where I was like, oh, I don't need to see any of these again. But I don't remember what it was. Oh, I, I think they like escape to a bunker and the nuclear holocaust starts or something. Yes. So Is it actually a- plays out that they are trying to stop like the nuclear thing from happening and the twist at the end is that they don't and it happens anyway which is kind of a bold choice for you know one of these movies they have nick Stahl playing john connor which i don't think is the best choice doesn't really no like he just needed to be a little bit rougher they have claire danes as like the love interest which i also don't think is a great choice for this franchise was it hamilton in the movie no i think she's supposed to be dead I think she is, yes. I think that was another thing about it that pissed me off. Great. So, I mean, the female Terminator is interesting. The action is, like, still pretty good. It's not a bad movie. It's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. Uh, I think the next two are supposed to be pretty bad. I have had Terminator Salvation, the fourth one, on DVD since about 2010, I think, and never (laughs) watched it. I think I tried to watch part of it, and I was like, you know what? No. The only thing I know about that movie is the Christian Bale, uh, good for you. <laughs> the infamous, your lights, yeah. The infamous rant. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, the, the only good thing that came out of that production. <laughs> so worldwide, these movies still generate a ton of money. The franchise has made over a billion dollars. They keep sinking in critical reception, though. So Termi- the Terminator has 100% Rotten Tomatoes, and Terminator Genesis has 26%. And all the others Ew. are in between. I've tried to read the plot description of the last one. <laughs> and you couldn't get through the no, plot description. No, it is bonkers. <laughs> I mean, it's like all this like alternate timeline stuff. Like, maybe it makes sense in the movie. I kind of doubt it. I feel it. like people don't really care about that. They want to see Arnold doing stuff. <laughs> and if he's not there, then who cares? But he is there. He's in the last one. Yeah, that's still bad. <laughs> <laughs> He's also old. You know what I mean? Like, right. ugh. Well, I think the point is that they should probably stop. Yes, that's... <laughs> I, I'm, I personally am not looking forward to another Terminator movie. Not only because the last couple have been bad, but also just, like, I feel like... I usually am on board for, like, okay, let's try something new. But in this case, I'm just like... Like, what else can you possibly do? Like, this will be the year that supposedly the Terminators are sent back. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of lost the, the whole momentum. I think the real twist will be that actual Terminators are going to appear in 2019, and we won't be very surprised. <laughs> Just judging by the way things have been going recently, I think that would pretty much fit at this point. I mean, I did see 2019 Los Angeles at the very beginning of, I think, both of the movies, and I was like... Yeah, accurate. I still believe that that's yeah, where we it checks get. out. It checks out. So let's just move to Canada. Because they're safe from they, yeah. nuclear holocaust? Yeah. They don't have that up there. No, they have weed and they have maple syrup. Let's do it. The maple syrup will protect us. A person who wrote to us, we're going to move in with you. Come to Canada if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> And that is all the Canadian bacon we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode.
Join Chris, myself, and our special guest host, Travis, as we get increasingly horrific plastic surgery to chase off mortality, make typos on government forms that get people tortured and killed, and put on a pair of sunglasses that helps us see that the bourgeoisie are reptilian alien creatures using humans as servants and food. We already promised you our 80s dystopia episode at the end of our Halloween discussion, but we decided to terminate you first instead. And so we promise that this next episode will be just as bleak and now even more relevant. Join us next time as we discuss John Carpenter's They Live and Terry Gilliam's Brazil. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. You can also find us on all the social media platforms. I have been Seth Pearson. I will be and have been Becky. And I'm terminated, fucker. Dum 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 dum. Allá, viene una tormenta. What did he just say? He said there's a storm coming in. <laughs>